The Defense Rests is a podcast where you're the jury. We'll put Christianity and other worldviews in the courtroom as we address the claims for and objections against the Christian faith, all from a legal perspective. Our host is Abdu Murray, lawyer, author, former Muslim turned Christian, and a senior vice president at RZIM. Abdu was named several times in Best Lawyers in America and Michigan Super Lawyer, and he will bring objections right from the very lips of atheists, agnostics, and various religions to see whether Christianity holds up to courtroom-level scrutiny. All rise, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and welcome to another episode of The Defense Rests. I'm your host, Abdu Murray. I am a trial attorney and senior vice president and speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. The Defense Rests is a podcast where we take a look at the claims for, the objections against the Christian faith using legal principles, whether it's the rules of evidence or trial procedure or uh, even the Constitution and the principles of law upon which a free society is based, or the way juries think and jury science, or the way judges make their rulings and why they make their rulings the way they do. We have to examine ourselves as jurors, people who are the trier of fact. And a trier of fact is simply exactly what it sounds like. Someone who looks at the facts, sees the evidence, weighs the credibility of the witnesses, weighs the importance of the evidence presented, and then makes a determination of liable or not liable, guilty or not guilty, or in the case of the Christian faith, true or not true? It is the question each one of us has to ask ourselves. And you, my friends, as the audience, you are the jury. And so we have to find out, does the Christian faith meet the preponderance of the evidence test? In some cases, does it meet the clear and convincing evidence test? Or does it prove itself beyond all reasonable, not all possible, but all reasonable out. Well, my friends, I am delighted to have as a returning guest for part two of our, I'm hoping you're finding it a fascinating discussion. I certainly am. Jay Warner Wallace. Jay Warner Wallace is a well-known homicide detective, a cold case, Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, uh, a national speaker and a best-selling author. He's written numerous books that take the perspective of being a cold case homicide detective, which is particularly pertinent to our discussion today because oftentimes the claims of the Christian faith and the test of the evidence for the Christian faith is based on centuries, if not millennia-old evidence, and to see if it actually holds up. Well, Jim is a cold case homicide detective, and so he has spent his entire career, or most of his career, looking at cases that are old and determining whether or not there are good reasons to present the case to a jury, helping the prosecution present that case to the jury, and ultimately winning that case. Oftentimes, by the way, when witnesses are not around, they've died or passed on or memories have faded or they're unavailable or whatever it might be. So you can see the obvious parallels, right, ladies and gentlemen? We don't have Mark or Peter or James or John or Paul or even Jesus in the flesh right in front of us to ask them what happened. We have other kinds of evidence, but it is good evidence. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. So, Jim, it's great to have you back on for this next part of our conversation. Thanks for being on the show once again and uh, providing us with some of your insight. 
Oh, well, I appreciate you having me on. You just said something that struck before I forget it. I want to just um, bring it up because you, you, you're right. We don't have access to the people who wrote the, the gospel is to ask follow-up questions, right? Because, <laughs> you know, when I worked uh, fresh homicides before I ever worked cold cases, I was, you know, you get called out in the middle of the night, takes you an hour to get there because you got to put a suit on and then you get there. The police have separated the eyewitnesses for you. So you want that. Otherwise they'll have the same story five times and what you want is the five slightly different, it looks like they're even contradictory stories because that's the way real eyewitnesses testify. And you don't want them harmonizing because they've had an hour to talk to each other. But but more importantly, you'll send out um, uh, detectives to help you. I'm not alone. I got a five-man team. So I'll tell my buddies who are working on the team, hey, do me a favor and either talk, you talk to so-and-so, there's five witnesses over there to split up and talk to those folks while I'm doing this thing over here. Maybe the coroner's investigator is about to land or CSI is about to arrive on scene. So I want to be there to deal with that. And I'll have the other detectives canvas the neighborhood. They'll go on all the, you know, potentially there's a witness out here who we haven't identified yet. And we want to either capture their earliest statement or maybe the fact that they say early on they didn't see anything in case they come up later on and say they did. But we're going to we're going to like canvas this neighborhood to collect all these eyewitness statements. Now, I'll get those back. And the next day after we've worked, you know, 48 hours and we're beat. And so I finally get some sleep and I come back and now I've got this stack of reports from all the team who have interviewed, say, 30 witnesses or at least knocked on 30 doors, and um, I've got to read those. And, and if I read through all those, I guarantee you that there will be problems. There'll be yeah. like stuff that you're going, what in the world? This sounds like, are you even on the same planet when this happened? I mean, how the, could it be so different, right? But what's great about it is I have the ability then to go back and re-interview everybody, maybe two, three times. And without feeding them what witness number one said, I can kind of tease at it to get them to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Like, you know, so for example, if you get one report where there's only one angel that appears to be at the tomb in the Gospels mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and another report where there's two, well, I'm not available now to, to now, clearly, it didn't bug anybody in the, at the time because both those Gospels, by the way, were, were actively used together early in history. So it's not like they didn't know there was a difference between these two. But for whatever reason, they didn't need to ask a follow. -up. Now, here's now centuries later, we're like going, okay, I want to know why they're different. Well, if it was a fresh homicide, and I could still talk to those guys. I would go out, but I wouldn't say witness number two says there were two, and you only say and mentioned one. What's the deal with that? Because then I'm I'm giving up something. I want the witness to tell me without being prompted by me. So I'm going to have to say, okay, so you say you talk to a witness. Okay. So tell me, um, what else did you see while you were there with that witness, talking to that angel or talking to whoever that was, right? Mm. What else did you see? Be very general. I'm not even going to say, did you see anyone else? Because that suggests there's another person that I'm looking right. for. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to be as neutral as possible to tease out any kind of clarification. And then hopefully if I do that and it's all recorded, so that uh, the, the juries later are going to judge me uh, harshly if I am too direct about this. I have to tease it out with be, without being obvious. Mm -hmm. um, then I'll be able to clarify what otherwise is going to be used by the defense to argue that this guy's uh, testimony is contradictory. So a lot of that, what you see in the Gospels, is just our inability to, after that whole area is canvassed, we, we unfortunately don't have access to the witnesses. But if we did, there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of these uh, alleged contradictions or differences between the Gospels would be worked out.
Yeah, and there's actually little hints too, and you can see it at careful reading sometimes, which I would analogize loosely, loosely to re-interviewing the witnesses. Just go back and reread the testimonies. So if you have a situation where, uh, well, my goodness, uh, the Gospels, uh, the synoptics tend to report that there is more than one woman who comes to the tomb, but John says there's only one woman who comes to the tomb on the first morning. It's Mary, and um, my goodness, you have a contradiction here. Well, when she says the statement, we, to Jesus, we don't know, because she thinks it's the, you know, they don't don't know where Jesus is. We don't know where they've put him. Well, who is the we? See, it's oftentimes the case that one little word can open up a seeming contradiction. And I think, you know, whether you are re-interviewing a witness or you're rereading the testimony as written down in the testimony of the evangelists, as um, Simon Greenleaf calls it, um, you're finding little things that can oftentimes clear up the problem that we think in our cleverness, oh, presents a problem that's insurmountable. And that's a different story. But well, let me, let me, at, go ahead. No, sorry. Well, look at it this way, too. I mean, you know that, that if you look at the four Gospels, you'll you can do a verse count of all four Gospels. You'll find the Mark's Gospel is very brief. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that is not in Mark's Gospels that you will find in Luke. Or in Matthew, there's a bunch of stuff in John's gospel that's not in any other gospel. And then a bunch of stuff from the other gospels that's not in John's. And John kind of gives us a clue at the end. You know, there's a lot of stuff we aren't writing about, folks. We're, we're telling you some of it. But if we were to write about everything that Jesus did and said, there'd be more, it wouldn't be enough shelf space for all this stuff. That's what he basically <laughs> says, okay? So right. it's clear that every one of these guys, like every witness, has an editorial process, a process by which they focus on some things and not on others. Well, what is it? that guides the editorial process of eyewitnesses. Sometimes it's stuff that's really interesting because it could be like, well, what, what is he trying to say to me? What is he trying? He's trying to make a case for something about this guy when he tells me this. Okay. So that might show sometimes what it is his goal is in giving the testimony at all. But other times it's very benign. It's very like, for give me an example of this. I was, uh, we, were, we live pretty close to the beach here in Southern California. So we are at the beach a lot and, and we'll either go for walks or runs on the beach. We're coming back from a run and we're walking up this long ramp from the beach to the street. And uh, as we're walking up the ramp, a lady walks by us, and I noticed she was in running clothes, okay? That's about – so if you asked me, Jim, that lady who was walking by you on the way up the ramp, what was she wearing? I would say running clothes. Well, what kind of running clothes? Um, I don't know. Was she wearing shorts? Or was she wearing like a tight leggings? What was she uh, – I will, you know, I didn't catch it, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because she just passed by me. It wasn't that critical. Now, my wife will tell you the brand of the running shorts – and the pattern of the running shorts, because it just so happened that she noticed she was wearing the same shorts that my wife wears, but that, that she noticed they were much tighter on the girl, like she was wearing a much smaller pair than my wife would typically wear. So she could even tell you the size. Now, what, what, what's happening there? Well, it, it turns out that of these two eyewitnesses, myself and my wife, uh, one has no interest and the other has not only an interest, but is knows specifically because she is interested in that brand of clothing. And that pair of shorts, and even notices a size issue. So sometimes it's just it's a combination of your 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 background. Who are you? What are you interested in? What are your likes and dislikes? How are you wired? But you know, either genetically from your parents or raised by your parents a certain way. These things go into how we see things and how we report them to others. So uh, if you're only interested in in the angel who spoke. 
And what was really being said in that scene, you really are interested in the dialogue that occurred in that scene. You'll see there's a lot of heavy dialogue in that particular gospel. Then you're probably only going to mention the, the angel that spoke. But there might be more. But you just, you, you know, you're just talking about the one who spoke. So, mm-hmm. so these are why you see differences in all eyewitness testimony. And this is the very thing as a new, as a new investigator of the gospels, this was the very thing that provoked me. Cause when I, the first pastor, whoever described Jesus just described him as the smartest man who ever lived. And that, that's what started me on a journey. Mm. I wanted to see why did he think this guy was so darn smart? And mm-hmm. if he was smart, maybe I could steal something. So <laughs> I, I was reading through the gospels for this limited purpose and when I read the accounts and the very the level of variation between the accounts, I said, oh, this feels like eyewitness testimony. I mean, it just has a texture of it, right? And I thought, I'm going to start to test it as eyewitness testimony to see if, if it actually is and if it holds up. And so it was the differences between the Gospels that first interested me in the Gospels. Let's pause for a moment because I think this is where we're getting to the million dollar thing that I was talking about before. This whole idea of, uh, and you're going to employ it at some point, but uh, forensic statement analysis and understanding how important the differences are uh, to not discrediting the Gospels, but actually giving them more credibility. Um, so we were hitting there, and I want to I make sure just to p- pause the audience to understand, let's not gloss over this. This is an important part of the discussion. Continue, Jim. Okay, well, I th- there's this discipline that we, we often use uh, when we're talking about um, statements made by either, not so much witnesses, but mostly by suspects. So, and it's called Forensic Statement Analysis, FSA. And so we're using FSA. Uh, usually, it's a, it's, and again, I'm going to just caveat this. It's a, uh, a, a kind of an art as much as a science. So there yeah. are some some aspects of it that we can say I can I can quantify, but most of it is really going to have to be what is my inference based on the evidence that I'm drawing out of the statement, and and these are statements that can be. Um, audio, I've done forensic statement analysis, for example, on old cases where all I had was several cassette decks, uh, cassette tapes of initial interviews. So I will have. Um, you find the best uh, person on your on your team who can um, actually transcribe all of that for you. It has to be transcribed. You have to listen to it to make sure the transcriptions are good. So I listen to it, make sure that it's written out exactly, and then I can do a forensic statement analysis on the transcription. Better even is if you have the suspect in front of you, is that you can give him a piece of paper. It's usually going to have like um, twenty four lines on uh, one side. You see, you can only write on one side. You give them a pen. Tell me everything you did yesterday, the day of the crime, from the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed. So if he says he got up at 8 a.m., went to bed at, at 12, well, then you know you've got, what, 12 hours and plus four. You've got 16 hours you have to account for. So you can take a look and say, well, 24 lines divided by 16. If he's going to give us an even accounting time-wise, he's going to have X number of lines per hour. And if he begins to expand time or contract time, we are going to look at that as an opportunity to ask, why is he doing that? It may be benign. It may be just the way he tells stories. But if you have him do this several repeatedly, you can get a sense. And the more you talk to somebody, you get a sense. If I've got like 20 transcripts of 20 interviews that were done in 1972, well, I've got a pretty good collection of responses that I can start to look at and say, no, he always says it that way. Or no, this is new. He's never used that word before. And so I'm looking for deception indicators. 
And those are the times where somebody is going to compress or expand. They're going to switch their use of pronouns, switch their use of tense sometimes, switch the way. If you look at the Tanya Harding statement about um, Nancy Kerrigan, uh, this is years ago when Tanya was accused of clubbing uh, her rival. They were both figure skaters, Olympic figure skaters. And she releases a statement in which she describes her relationship with um, Nancy Kerrigan. Well, if you read that statement, you'll see the different ways she doesn't always call her Nancy. She doesn't call her, she sometimes might say it, my friend, or my companion. She'll, she'll change the way she refers to her as she's narrating the story. And interestingly, she uses the most distant pronouns she can use for Nancy at the very time that Nancy's being attacked. So you're going to be able to look and see, well, how am I using, how, how am I using tense? How am I using adverbs and adjectives? Remember that no one ever needs to use an adjective or an adverb. You really don't. Yeah. yeah. These are optional words. And so because they're optional, I can look at and say, well, why would he use, given all the choices, all the things that, that could be said, why would you say it that way? You know, and that was uh, powerful. I'm trying to think if I have, I, I've got a case from years ago where when asked, um, he was notified that his wife was, was murdered and uh, he was asked for his response. And um, you can imagine the ways you might respond to that. Oh, I, I couldn't believe it. Are you, are you, and by the way, it just happened like yesterday and he's talked to about it. He's interviewed about it. And he says, oh, well, I hate to inform you, but your wife has been. So it's the first he allegedly is hearing of it. Mm-hmm. And so what will his response be? You can stop it right there for the jury and just say, okay, he's just been notified that 12 hours earlier, his wife, his ex-wife, he just had separated, okay, mm-hmm. had been murdered. And, and what is he going to say? Well, that's, that's a great time for use of forensic statement analysis because you're going to ask yourself not just what does he say, but like we talked about in the last episode, what could he have said but chose not to? Right. In this guy's case, he said, well, you know, we never had a great relationship. Um, but you know, um, I hate to see anyone die. No one likes to see anyone die. I hate to see anyone die. That's a really strange way to, to put it. Don't you think it turns out that the last person to see her alive, the person who saw her die was this guy. Yeah. Now, is that statement give him away? Not really. It has to be assessed in, in totality with all the other things he would say, but he never once said, well, who did it? By the way, wouldn't, wouldn't you ask, how did it happen? He never asked how it happened. He never asked who did it. He never asked where it happened because he knew all those things. He already knew the answer to all those things. Right. Now, at least if he he had been playing along, he should have at least asked those questions, right? Because he doesn't know the answer to those questions. And that's the first thing I want to know. If somebody says your ex-wife was killed, by the way, this is why when we say that to them, we don't say, yeah, I hate to report to you, but yesterday your ex-wife was found shot to death in her house at 12 p.m. We think it's, no, we don't give any of that from it. We want to see, will he ask, okay? Right, of course. <laughs> because we know that if you already know the answer, you're not going to ask. So but my point is, forensic statement analysis considers all of these things. And so how it became how, uh, powerful for me is that I had been doing this with my agency for a number of years by the time I was looking at the Gospels for the first time. And I... And I also knew that, um, just reading it, that, that Mark is not an eyewitness necessarily. I mean, there's some traditions that say he is. I, I didn't see anything that I thought was all that compelling to suggest that Mark was actually an eyewitness. And Papias in the first century, second century, says that, um, you know, early second century says that Papias, uh, that uh, Mark wrote uh, the account at the feet of Peter in Rome. And that Mark was not necessarily writing everything in the right order. He said he was accurate, if not orderly. 
meaning he wasn't putting the details in the right order, probably because Peter's not preaching them as a like, historical narrative. He's preaching them in topics. Right. And so Mark's doing his best to reassemble it. Okay. So the question is, if that's true, wouldn't I expect to find uh, a little bit of the fingerprints of Mark in the writings of, I mean, fingerprints of Peter rather, in the, the gospel of Mark? Wouldn't I expect to find a little bit? Right. And so for mm-hmm. me, it became an issue of, well, could I use forensic statement analysis just to to see if, in fact, um, Peter's fingerprints are in the Gospel of Mark? And you'll find all kinds of interesting things if you do that. I think there's a good case that can be made uh, that Mark's is doing. Exa- By the way, we, we have somebody telling us that's what he did because this is what Papias is telling us. But I'm just saying if I didn't know that, um, could I use it? You know, like you will see that Mark mentions Peter with great prominence. He's featured uh, frequently in Mark's gospel. He just is. He he refers to Peter 26 times in that mm-hmm. very short account where Matthew only mentions uh, him three times more in a gospel that's about twice as long. Right. So Peter's very, very prominent in Mark's gospel. He's also seems to be very familiar. Um, he's the only writer who doesn't use the word Simon Peter when describing mm-hmm. Peter. He either uses Simon or Peter. He never uses the word Simon Peter, which is clearly the, the word you would use if you're distinguishing this Peter from others. That, that might seem like it's nothing, okay? But I think it is important. And, and he's the, that's the most popular name in Palestine, by the way, at the time of Mark's writing. Yet Mark makes no attempt to ever single out this Peter from others, given that's the most popular name out there. Right. He never calls him Simon Peter? Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, John refers to Peter as Simon Peter 17 times in a, another short gospel. John's gospel is the second shortest gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's something that's to look at. Also, uh, he, he kind of starts, he bookends um, the, the, the the gospel. If you look at Mark uh, chapter 1 and then Mark chapter 16, he'll just see that Peter's the first disciple in Mark 1. He's the last disciple mentioned in Mark uh, 16. That's interesting to me, right? But he's also given great respect. So what I mean is, um, if somebody says, and you see this all the time, you know, uh, Jesus is teaching this, and then Peter says this stupid thing, <laughs> okay, like you know, like, uh, and Peter does, he says a bunch of stupid things, right, in the Gospels. I mean, you see him do this all the time. Uh, uh, not going to happen in Mark's Gospel nearly as much as Mark covers for Peter really well. So there's two accounts, for example, of the uh, walking on water of Jesus. In one of the accounts. Peter decides to get out of the boat. And once he gets out of the boat, he begins to sink. And then Jesus says to Peter, he says, hey, you're a man of little faith. You know, (laughs) he calls him a man of little faith in front of everybody else. Well, that happens in Matthew's account. It does not happen in Mark's. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Mark, as a matter of fact, in Mark's account, Peter never gets out of the boat. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, And I'll give you an example. Luke's gospel has a description of that miraculous catch. By the way, if you haven't seen The Chosen, yeah, um, I, I definitely have. Uh, oh I my gosh! It. Yes, I recommend it too. That that I thought they did a wonderful job with the miraculous catch, kind of creating a fictional backstory that leads up to the miraculous. That was pretty cool. Anyway, but if you look at Luke's account of that, um, Peter is actually saying that he doubts Jesus's wisdom. It's in the Chosen series, also. Like you know, like he's like saying, "Hey, I, I've already tried. Okay, I've been unsuccessful all day trying to catch fish." He like he doubts uh, Jesus. And then he catches a ton of fish, right? And he says, go away from your Lord. I'm a sinful man. This is in Luke 5, right? But in the parallel account uh, with Mark, he leaves that stuff out. He leaves out almost any time that Peter does something embarrassing, 
Mark leaves it out. That's interesting to me. Why would he do that? So again, you can go through this again and again and again. But the point is, as I'm reading through all of uh, Mark's account, I did think there was enough kind of forensic statement um, evidence to at least confirm or corroborate the claims of Papias. Well, and uh, you, you can go through and do numerous different things if you wanted to, to, to go through this. And ladies and gentlemen, I would uh, recommend then that you do that. And a good way to do that is look at Cold Case Christianity, Jim's book, where he takes these principles and applies them to the quote unquote cold case of Christianity. And uh, you can go through this exercise amongst others. And there's a nice way to, at the end of every chapter, uh, and even in the middle of the chapters, there's little helps like understanding how evidence works and the jury instructions and these kind of things. So I highly recommend that to your reading if you're interested in what Jim's been talking about here. Let me go to something else because I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit more in terms of methodology and even the heart issue. I don't mean like an emotional issue. I mean motivations about why we do the things we do and um, move along as well to sort of a close here. Now, I saw a show recently. My wife and I were watching a television show on Netflix. It's called Unbelievable. And it's a um, based on a true story. Um, I'm not sure how accurate the true story actually is to the episodes itself or the show itself. But it's basically the story of these two rape investigators, two women, very different. One actually is a committed Christian. The other is about as committed an atheist as you can get, but they form this unlikely friendship. And what I love about the show, by the way, is the Christian is not seen as some backwards, hokey, sort of babe in the woods, naive person who loses her faith and sort of becomes grown up at the end. In fact, I would say that they sort of both influence each other in one way, but um, it's interesting because at the end of the season, the, the atheist, although in a very crass way, and warning, there's a lots of vile language, but um, in a very crass way, she says at the end, I prayed last night. So that's an, I maybe spoiled the show for you, but I didn't spoil the outcome. Here's my point. The show is called Unbelievable because there's a moment with a young lady who's got a bit of a checkered past and because of the things she's gone through, she's raped. Someone comes into her home, uh, the apartment she's staying in, and very cleverly basically wipes the place clean of all forensic evidence. And she's giving the account to the detectives, the first detectives who interview her uh, about what happened. And one of the detectives picks up on a bit of a contradiction in the statement. And another detective is sort of leery of this and basically says, look, miss, our job is to protect the public. And every time we have to deal with someone who comes in with a false claim, we have to take away resources from real cases. And so both these detectives are sort of painted as uh, a bit jerky. The one is a little more um, understanding and circumspect, but he's like, I don't know. I can't reconcile the differences in her story. And what they end up doing is, uh, for lack of a better word, browbeating her into saying she made it up. And so she takes it back and she's actually convicted at some point of false reporting, which is a big deal. Anyway, it turns out she wasn't lying. And uh, there's a number of things that happen after that are important because it leads to other cases that could have been prevented. Here's my point in bringing this up. My point is, at some point, there comes a time when there's a bias or a motivation and even dismissiveness. Now, with these detectives, they saw a contradiction or an irreconcilable, at the moment, difference in her accounts two or three facts didn't seem to line up, or maybe one fact didn't line up with another in her account. Now, 
the one detective wanted to try to get to the bottom of it, but eventually became dismissive. And the other one was outright dismissive. I bring this up because the possibility exists. If you're a non-Christian, for example, and you're looking at the Christian claims and you're looking at the eyewitness testimony or the claims in the Gospels, and you find something that looks like a discrepancy, and you don't decide to dig a little further, or you do dig a little further, but not quite enough to see if there's a contradiction or a reconcilable difference of account, you might be dismissive and you might miss the whole thing. But along come two other detectives who are looking at the claims and they're looking at them and they're saying, you know what? We understand people often have sometimes contradictory, but sometimes just multiple perspectives on a fact based on when they happened or the vantage point they were looking at them from that can be reconcilable. So a difference doesn't necessarily derail a detective from continuing the investigation just because they're not being dismissive. Motivation plays a factor here. So Jim, I'm sure there's been times when you looked at something and you said to yourself, well, wait a minute, some stuff isn't adding up here, but I have good reason to continue. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say something um, super controversial. Okay. Because, All right. <laughs> because I mean, but so but just my own experience when I was first looking at, at scripture, I didn't have a, like I wasn't raised in the church. Um, didn't have any idea of what occurs in church. Uh, don't, didn't have any idea what the uh, language of church was. Uh, none of these things were uh, part of my background. And, and so this, this created for me, uh, maybe some open doors that were not available for others. So in other words, I never wrestled, had to wrestle or even give it, give a uh, thought uh, about inerrancy of scripture. I didn't care about inerrancy. I didn't know anything about inerrancy. I, I, here's what I knew. I just needed to figure out, um, is this witness reliable? That's all I really cared about. Is the witness reliable? It turns out the reliability does not require inerrancy. And as a matter of fact, I've never had ever in my history of working cases, any inerrant witnesses. They're always wrong about something. Okay. They just are. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, defense teams love this, right? Because defense teams are going to do their best to, you know, make a big deal out of this because that's what they're going to do. They're going to argue that, look, she was wrong about this. I've had cases where the, the, the key witness in the case, why well, I needed for some key piece of evidence, right? Like I needed this key piece of evidence that I needed to bring in. And this is the only way to get it in was through this witness. And sure enough, uh, the witness ends up being wrong about something else. And so the defense team is going to argue, well, look, she was wrong about this thing over here in the corner. So therefore, you can't trust her on this key thing that they're trying to use her for. She's not reliable because she was wrong. Well, then juries actually have an instruction. Here's what I always say. You can be wrong as a witness, yet still be deemed reliable. Yes, you can be wrong. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of the gospel authors are wrong because a lot of what appears to be a discrepancy or appears to be a contradiction for the most part they very seldom if ever are there are things you can always work out uh, there's mm-hmm. not there's not something that but this idea that you can be wrong and still be reliable is a part of the jury instructions it's in section 105 here in california of the california criminal jury instructions i'm going to read it to you mm-hmm. do not automatically reject testimony just because of inconsistencies or conflicts Consider where the di- whether the differences are important or not. People sometimes honestly forget things or make mistakes about what they remember. Also, two people may witness the same event yet see it or hear it differently. 
That's a jury instruction that judges give jurors so they won't just throw under the bus a witness who's you know actually doing her best or his best, and maybe you find out that they were mistaken about something. It doesn't mean they are necessarily now unreliable because of this. Now, I'll tell you that, that you might think, well, is it important or not? Well, if, if your standard is that I believe that there's none of Mark in Mark's gospel, and there's none of John in John's gospel, and there's none of Matthew in his or Luke in his. It is 100% the words that God chose without ever using the writer in any way. He was just in a cosmic trance as he penned the scripture. I don't know that that's our view. I think our view is that God uses the attributes and the nature and the experiences of John differently than those of, of Luke. And you get gospels that have slight variations because the authors have different experiences. Luke's uh, background as a doctor it gives him insight into certain things that he talks about, which are very interesting from a doctor's background. Um, John's a fisherman. He's got different experiences. Uh, you know, Peter is, by the time he's penning this in Rome, he's gone through all kinds of things with Jesus. And he's, and God, uses these differences. So the stuff that comes off the pen of the scribe who is scribing for these authors, it very much takes into account the nature of the authors. They have a big part. If, if God intended to get us four gospels that were we could test to see if they are reliable, he achieved it. Hmm. Because reliable eyewitness testimony bears these attributes. And so if that was the goal, if the goal was, I'm going to give you something that you can then use for eternity, you know, for the rest of of our temporal lives here before Jesus comes again, that you can have confidence is the reliable account of what happened in the first century. He achieved it. And I think that was the goal. And I think that means you you have to factor in that. um, So just for sake of argument, if 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 someone says, well, I see a contradiction. Okay. Okay. So, so there's a contradiction. If you saw that in a criminal trial, you would not be allowed to throw the witness under the bus. Right. And, and you would be sending someone potentially to his death based on that testimony. That's a high kind of uh, sense of responsibility. You, mm-hmm. it's, you, it's someone's temporal existence hangs in the balance. And that standard, I think, also works for your eternal existence. And as a guy who didn't know anything about uh, the standard of inerrancy or what that even meant as a new investigator of the scriptures. All I cared about is, is it reliable? And should I make a decision based on its reliability? And that's basically what I try to do. Yeah. And I think that this is an important thing just to uh, pause for a moment and just make sure it's clear is that it's one thing to, and I ascribe to inerrancy. And I think that the Bible is, contains no errors in that which it affirms um, or teaches, but uh, I think that the important thing here to point out is that there will be those people who are listening right now who either whose faith is hanging by a thread or who are not Christians. And the important thing to understand is this, is that in order to understand and believe that which occurred in the first century to Jesus of Nazareth, you don't need to prove that the Bible is inerrant in everything it says or that the eyewitnesses didn't, you know, uh, juxtapose something for either literary effect or for a mistake or whatever it might be. The question is, did what they say happen actually happen? And I think you can do that even if you were to allow for the possibility that such people might not report things in every detail accurately. So it's a baseline issue. It's not a matter of do you 
have to prove inerrancy before you can become a Christian. I do think inerrancy is important. I think it's a, a very important thing to wrestle with. I happen to be an inerrantist, but I also don't think as a skeptic, you need to get there. It's funny because my own background as a Muslim, I thought that the Bible was full of errors because I thought it had been corrupted. And through a number of reasons that people have heard me say before, I came to a, a different conclusion that it was not changed. Um, but I didn't come to it believing every word that it had to say, or even at some point, most of the words. What ended up becoming convincing for me, much like you, Jim, and we share so much of the same story in so many ways because of our evidence-based backgrounds and the way we look at things, um, I wanted to know, did it say what comported with reality? Does the Bible say that which actually happened? And the answer that I came up with was yes. And um, am I an inerrantist today? You bet. But did, did I become a believer before I was an inerrantist? I'm not sure. I, I don't know how I looked at it at that point. I, I wouldn't be able to go back and say I was an inerrantist and then I became a believer. I don't think that's the case. In fact, if you had to believe in the inerrancy of Second Timothy, for example, um, then there would be no Christians before Paul wrote it. Uh, because you had to right, believe in right. something that didn't even exist at the time. So your point is well taken, is that you don't have to prove inerrancy before you can come to the reliability of the scriptures. Those are actually two different things altogether. Look at the evidence standards in the in the criminal jury instructions or civil jury instructions for that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, uh, let me just say something else that is relatively controversial right now, but I think it needs to be said. And that is that I see a lot of, of scholars who will um, take different approaches trying to reconcile different literary theories about the nature of the Gospels based on the fact they're trying to reconcile what they consider to be differences. I see these in debates. I've seen them in their academic work. I've seen it in the books they're writing where they're basically saying, hey, you know, uh, maybe there's a genre, for example, of biography in the first century that would allow an author to say something that really isn't true just for literary effect. And that's just the way that the uh, biographies were written in the first century. I mean, I see a lot of this. Uh, what I would suggest is that, look, if, if you've ever worked true eyewitness accounts, I'm talking about thousands upon thousands of them. You don't need, if you, I guarantee if you looked at one of my cases from 1975, you'd have to argue there must be a different genre for eyewitness testimony in 1975 because these things don't seem <laughs> really, no, you're not going to do that. You're just going to say, no, this is the nature of eyewitness. There is no reason to concoct another literary theory to, in an effort to explain differences in real events, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I've been there when it's only been an hour since the guy was shot in the head, okay? Mm -hmm. And an hour later, I can't get four people to agree on things that I know later on are going to be a problem in trial. Mm -hmm. Because they've got different perspectives and different things they were focused on and different attitudes about what you know what's going on and what they thought of this guy from the very beginning. I've got some witnesses have a bad attitude about who does. The, the, the shooter is or who the, the victim is or who another witness is and oh, he's wrong. He'll just be disagreeable for the sake of being disagreeable. I'm just telling you that eyewitnesses never, ever, ever, can I be more clear? Ever <laughs> agree. Okay. They don't. So they, they agree on some things and disagree on a bunch of other things. And so I, I, that to me does not cause me then to try to jump out and figure out how to um, explain these differences. Yeah. Well, let me let me do this. And I want to bring this to a close. It's been a boy. We could go on for multiple, multiple episodes, Jim. But there's so many things that I want to talk to you about uh, and uh, get your perspective on. But let me close this out with a matter of motivations, whether it's a dateline 
or cop show you see. And what does the defendant usually say at some point or the well, it's the defendant at the trial, but it's a suspect during the investigation. You know, you never had your eye on anybody else but me. You came to this investigation looking for evidence that I did it, not to see if I did it, and you had your eye on me the whole time. Now, I think that can be true of people who are supernaturally belief-minded, people who can believe in religious claims, and those who are anti-supernatural or don't believe in the supernatural. And I've seen it time and again, people who will come to the table and look at the same exact evidence, because there's confirmation bias in all these things, but at some point, you are going to have to ask yourself, am I looking to see if it's true or am I looking to see that it's false? And I think that's an important thing. And I'm sure you've had to wrestle with that bias often because you're a human being. No matter how objective you try to be about the evidence, you're a human being. And my guess is at some point you had to wrestle with that even as you began to look at the Christian faith and the evidence for and against it. No, yeah, you're right about that. I mean, I, I, a lot of it, though, was tempered early. I got lucky. And one of the first homicides I had to, to roll to, I was the junior member of the team. And I had a senior guy who was about 15 years more uh, senior than me. So this guy had been through about everything. And he was our, our go-to guy. And um, I remember we picked up a suspect um, on this murder that we thought, okay, this is interesting. And do this huge investigation. And as it was kind of uh, unwinding, getting close to the end, uh, I made a statement in front of the team, which I should never have made. I cool. said, dude, this guy is so guilty that if this isn't our guy, and we, by the way, we're just waiting for the DNA to come back. I said, if this isn't our guy, I should be working auto theft. I should not be in, in crimes persons. I should not be working homicide. Mm. And and so sure enough, um, it, it ended up not being him. Uh, it was a guy who oh, was uh, his roommate. <laughs> his, so a lot of things appointed to him yep. actually was his roommate. I can see why we were, you know, we were close, but we weren't, it wasn't another right guy. But what was good about it is, and, and that, but that, but for me, what that did was it, it gave me a certain sense of humility because by the way, my, my team never forgot it. And so <laughs> until those guys, re, until those guys retired, I, I heard it every day. I just was, could not wait until there was nobody around who remembered that. And I never made that kind of stupid statement or, or actually presumed I knew anything uh, ever again. I was always the last guy to be convinced. And somebody comes in and says, I got a cold case and I think I know who did it. Really? I'm, I'm going to guess not. Okay. Until, but yeah. we had a, a system in place, a mechanism in place, because it's not unusual uh, that you have cases where uh, there are several pieces of evidence that either point away from the guy who you know did it. Later on, he confesses, so you know he did it. Or there are things that point to somebody who's not the suspect. This happens all the time. So it's not as, as cut and dry as you might like to think it is. It's often a little uh, unclear. And so, so you have to f have a mechanism in place that will exclude people. Um, and so that's what we have with him. We, we knew we had DNA at the, at the crime scene. So after we located him, established like five things that I thought made him look like our guy, then we swabbed him. We wrote a search warrant. We swabbed him, right, for the DNA because we figured, okay, if, if he is our guy, this will lock it in. Uh, and then, of course, that was our default mechanism. That was our way of negating his involvement. So, so we have a system in place, you hope, if you do this right, you hope that you have a system in place that, that leads you away from who you think the bad guy is if, if you're wrong. But I will tell you that this does happen. Um, for example, there's two kinds of cold cases. There are true whodunits. We got no no suspects in, uh, looking at it. Uh, it's, it was a whodunit from the beginning. So I've had some of those. Uh, I had one, for example, where I had to swab 34 guys for this poor girl's murder. We never did find the guy. Mm. Um, and, and we never had a case on any one of those. That was all that compelling. But we've also got a bunch of these cases where 
they knew who the guy was back in 1980. They just could never make a case. And so now I hesitate on those cases because if you think, oh, we know who you'll talk to those investigators. Oh, we knew this was the guy. Well, really? Um, you got to convince me now, though, because I'm not I'm going to be the one who's hanging on Dateline if we're wrong about this. Right. So so I'm always very I'm always the last guy in now, uh, even if my partner says, oh, I'm sure this is our guy. Well, you know what? Great. Good for you. I'm not. And so uh, I'll <laughs> be the last guy in because I'm not going to look like a fool on this episode of national TV. Hmm. So, but that does happen. But here's what I would say. I see a slight twist to this. When you hear people say, well, okay, so Jim, you think that you applied this to Christianity. How, if you weren't raised in a Christian nation, this wouldn't have been the focus of your investigation to begin with. Did you take that approach to every other religious worldview at the time to make sure, or did you just stop right there and focus on Christianity? And that's, that's the reason why you're a Christian. In other words, was it just that you didn't have any other suspect that you were willing to look at? And instead, you just looked at Christianity. Well, okay. Abdu, I know you're a huge man. Okay, so how tall are you? Six eight. Okay, you're six eight. Can I ask uh, this? Ask the big question. You can lie about this. Okay, I'll give you permission to lie. How much do you weigh? I'm going to say. No, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's two eighty. Yeah. Okay, two eight. Okay, that's not bad for six eight, dude. That's that's great. Okay, so here's my point. If I was going to take you in as a suspect, right, and now you're the defendant in a criminal trial, and I make a case in front of a jury, and I've now got a hundred pieces of evidence that point to you as the suspect, can you imagine the defense attorney? Getting up and saying, you realize, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, there's probably 100,000 other six foot eight, 280 pound men who have brown hair or black hair and brown eyes. Has he gone out and investigated the other 100,000? No. Well, okay, that's silly. Uh, look, if there's not enough evidence to, to convict this guy, don't convict him. As simple as that. I mean, I'm making a case based on the strength of this evidence. And if you don't think there's enough, but to say I've got to make an anti-case against every other person who looks similar is stupid, okay? Right. And, and, and no one's going to say that. So I think in the end, what we have to be able to say is once I discovered, now I actually did a simultaneous investigation on two worldviews because I had family that were Mormons and they would have loved for me to become a Mormon. So my first investigation really was the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. I read through all of that before I even read the Old Testament because they were so convinced the Book of Mormon was true. Mm-hmm. And so as I applied the same, I have a template I apply to all of this. It's in cold case Christianity. It's mm-hmm. a template that tells you if eyewitnesses are telling the truth. Well, the Mormonism cannot pass that template in any aspect of the template. It fails on every four areas. Mm-hmm. So I ended up of these two views. I knew that, that it wasn't Mormonism wasn't true. But, but, but if, if Christianity mm-hmm. passes in all four areas, I'm not any under, under any other obligation. Right. Right. I mean, it's just like the suspect. I found his fingerprints and his DNA at the crime scene. Do I have to go out now and swab every other person who looks like him? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Same thing is true here. If you've got a worldview, a, a theistic worldview that checks the boxes, you can stop. Congratulations. Sometimes you pick that suspect, the first guy you pick. Sometimes it's the 10th. But once you get the guy who checks all the boxes, you're good to go. Yep. Yeah. So let me bring this to a close, ladies and gentlemen, because this is important, how Jim has ended his previous comment. This is important because oftentimes I find it to be the case that if someone sees the strength of the evidence in favor of the Christian faith, they engage in what I call yeah, but syndrome. They can't stop saying yeah, but yeah, but they keep offering new objections. And 
very intelligent, very well-meaning, very thoughtful, well-read people will start to add a bunch of objections, not because they think that the objections actually work, but because they are in some sense a diversion. Now, I'm not saying that happens every time. There's a matter of motivation. So if you were to say to somebody, look, you were dismissive, you didn't look at every other worldview, uh, or you dismissed the evidence, what I would caution you is on two things. One is if you see something that might seem to put a point of concern for you, uh, on the Christian faith, because something doesn't quite add up. I would ask you to keep at it. Don't be dismissive. Keep at it, because the case might be strong enough for you to say, there's good enough reason to put my trust in Jesus based on the evidence that I do see, and maybe the stuff that I can't quite reconcile might have a, an impact later. I'm not saying put your head in the sand. What I am saying is that there is enough evidence that can form a strong case, even if one strand of it might not be exactly as you like it. But number two, it's this, is that if you find yourself making objections like, well, I need to investigate every single worldview that's out there, lest I pick the wrong one. I think what is important is this, is that ask yourself the question, are you doing that to avoid the decision? Or or are you doing it because you're genuinely curious? Now, the reality is if you start to investigate every worldview out there, even when you have enough evidence to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he claimed to be the son of God who takes away the sins of the world by dying on a cross, meaning he paid a debt that you and I owe that we can't possibly pay, but he pays it for us. And then he rises from the dead to prove he was right. If you have all of that evidence, I'm going to tell you this, every other worldview contradicts those statements. And so if you have that established, you need no more evidence in favor of the Christian faith to exclude the opposites, those that claim the opposite. So I think this is an important question on motivations. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have heard a seasoned cold case homicide detective who has spent a lot of time in front of a lot of juries and helped a lot of prosecutors present a lot of cases. Now, does that mean that because he's a Christian, you should suddenly just simply fall in line and be that? No. What I'm going to suggest to you is that if you're someone who's a skeptic, good. I want you to be a skeptic. Don't be a cynic. A skeptic is someone who doesn't believe until there's enough evidence. A cynic is someone who doesn't believe even when there is enough evidence. And the evidence is strong enough, I think, that you'll begin to see there is a good case for the Christian faith. Jim, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, to go through all this stuff. We could keep going on and on and on. Maybe we'll have you back on for another episode at some point. But until then, you have my thanks for spending the time with us and giving us your insight and the value of your experience. No, thanks so much for having me, brother. You know how I feel about you. I think this is uh, somehow we got tied together because of our background and our experience. And I'm just glad we can continue forward together as well. Me too. Me too. Thanks again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of The Defense Rests. And until next time, The Defense Does Rest. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. Or in Canada, that website is rzim.ca. 